Well, good morning. It's lovely to be back with you again. We greatly enjoyed our time uh, with you. I guess that's more than three years ago uh, now. It's amazing how time passes. But uh, yeah, we feel we made good friends here and it's always uh, a pleasure for us to come back to see you again and to share with you in worship. And uh, this morning, I, I want to make a request. A friend of mine uh, from Queen's Park phoned me just a couple of days ago, knowing the connection that we had with Airdrie. He didn't, he didn't know we were coming this particular Sunday. Um, but he phoned to ask if there was any possibility of anybody here um, giving hospitality to a young girl, 19-year-old, girl who has come down from Shetland. She had been in Queen's Park for about a year and uh, Stan and Katrina befriended her and supported her. Um, she's apparently bright, we don't really know her, but a bright uh, bubbly Christian girl. Uh, but a bit nervous, I guess, maybe coming from Shetland um, to, to Glasgow. She's now in Edinburgh, uh, studying through in Edinburgh for occupational therapy and has a six-week placement here in, uh, I guess it will be in Coat Hill um, Hospital, certainly in Hospital Street, uh, for six weeks. And Stan wondered if he felt it would be a great support to her if it were possible for her to find accommodation here. She would obviously contribute something towards the cost of that, um, say from Sunday night till Thursday uh, during, during the week. She would go back through to Edinburgh each weekend. Anyway, that's the request. If, uh, if any of you felt able uh, to respond to that, then that would be wonderful. Um, if not, don't worry about it. But if you do, I don't expect you to kind of respond immediately to that. But if it were possible to give this 19-year-old Christian girl from Shetland um, accommodation for about six weeks, probably from April, I think, it would be um, from Sunday to Thursday uh, each week while she's working on a placement here in Coat Hill Hospital. Then if that's possible, you can either speak to me or obviously speak to Ross or Deborah uh, over the next week or two if that seems possible. Okay, that's all I wanted to ask you, but let's turn for our scripture reading to Acts chapter 9, and we'll read just... Um, just a few verses, really, from verse 26 of chapter 9 down to verse 31. Acts 9 and verse 26. Uh, Saul has been converted on the Damascus Road, and he is already uh, sharing, witnessing uh, wherever he can and sharing his faith. But many of the Christians are not at all sure about him. Can this really be genuine? And so verse 26, this is the word of God. We read, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Paul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, 
speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened, and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. I'm sure I've told you before that one of my favorite translations of the New Testament is the one that was done by J.B. Phillips many years ago now. In fact, it's a bit dated now, if the truth be told. But, but engaging in that translation of the New Testament was absolutely life-changing for J.B. Phillips, uh, an Anglican uh, minister. And in his preface to the book of Acts, which was published first as the Young Church in Action, he says this. He says, this surely is the church as it was meant to be. It is vigorous and flexible, for these are the days before it ever became fat and short of breath through prosperity or muscle-bound by over-organization. Perhaps because of their very simplicity, perhaps because of their readiness to believe, to obey, to give, to suffer, and if need be to die, the Spirit of God found what surely he must always be seeking, a fellowship of men and women so united in love and faith that he can work in them and through them with the minimum of let and hindrance. That was J.B. Phillips' conclusion about what was going on in the book of Acts. And for me, that is what makes Acts exciting and dangerous any time to read. I'd only been pastor at Queen's Park for a few years when we uh, invited uh, the Reverend Jim Graham, whom many of you I know remember with great affection here in Airdrie. We invited Jim to come as our anniversary guest for a weekend of Bible teaching. And he took us through some of these early chapters of Acts. And I'll never forget at the end of the session on the Saturday evening, he challenged us that if we wanted to be part of a church like that early church, to stand and affirm our commitment to go on that journey. He warned us not to respond lightly to this kind of challenge, but to think about it, and then if we were ready, to stand. Well, we weren't into big responses in those days, but the whole church stood. Everybody who was there stood in response to that challenge. Yes, this is the kind of church we would like to be. And it was a watershed moment for us. I'm sure the church had been through these chapters in Acts many times before over the years, but something happened that weekend that opened us up to spiritual renewal and to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a way that we hadn't known before. And they were exciting days of development and growth. Within a few years of that weekend, we had seen many lives transformed, 
We had seen a major renovation of the church building paid for by one weekend's giving. And we had seen a new congregation planted in Newton Mearns, where, of course, Brian Moore is the present pastor, a very successful church plant. So the book of Acts has always been an exciting and a challenging book to me. And this morning, I just want to look with you at one verse, the last verse we read, Acts 9, verse 31. It's one of Luke's little summaries, of which there are several uh, throughout the whole book of Acts, in which he stops to say, in effect, this is the story so far. This is where we've got to in our journey with the Lord. And uh, I'm thinking, what, what if he were to write a summary of Airdrie Baptist Church right now? What would Luke's summary be of this church? And so, as we just look fairly briefly at this verse, here's what Luke tells us about the New Testament church, about the church at that stage in its life. First of all, he says, there is peace. There is peace. Now, that was a new thing for them, actually, to know peace. There was peace from internal strife. And they'd certainly already known their share of internal strife. You go back to Acts chapter 6, and you read about some of it. After a period of, of bold witnessing and incredible advance, there comes this period of infighting in the congregation. And the truth is, that's often what happens in church life. And that's certainly what happened there. People of different backgrounds who had been drawn into the church, people of different backgrounds were struggling to get along together. The Grecian Jews complained that the Hebrew widows were getting better treatment than their widows. So there are, there are these two groups of people at loggerheads. Now, what was, what was causing this strife, do you think? Who knows? Might have been selfishness, might have been favoritism, might have been being part of an in-crowd. It might have been sheer thoughtlessness that caused it to happen. But whatever caused it, there was bickering and complaining and fault-finding in the church. And it happens, doesn't it? I know it doesn't happen here, of course, in Airdrie Baptist, but it happens in churches. That kind of behavior caused the strife in the church. But notice what cured it. And we're not going back into detail in Acts 6, but I'll tell you what cured it. Good leadership, prompt action, and generosity of spirit sorted out what could have been a major division in the church's life. They didn't let the thing fester, the thing that was causing them trouble and bother. They didn't let it fester. The leaders admitted they were trying to do too much themselves. At least 
That's my surmise of it. Doesn't actually say that, but that's the implication. They were trying to do too much themselves. There needed to be a recognition of other people's gifts. And so the church appointed seven people who actually were probably all Grecians background. That's what their names imply. And that's what I mean by generosity of spirit. See, these Hebrew background people were prepared to acknowledge, actually, these Grecians are gifted. Here are men full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Let's entrust the task to them. That takes a lot for people to do that, when actually that's where the problem has been. But if you have that kind of, of attitude, then things can get sorted. See, there was peace from internal strife. Actually, they had to face it again. You go on a few chapters into Acts 15, same things happening, the same root cause. People of different backgrounds and traditions, different ideas, wanting to impose their way on the whole church. Again, Acts 15, how is it dealt with? It's dealt with by good leadership. It's dealt with by genuine openness to one another and by a, by a corporate seeking of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> if you have that going on in a church, you can cope with anything. Good leadership, genuine openness to one another and respect for one another, and a corporate seeking of the Holy Spirit. Given that, internal problems can usually be sorted out. So they knew freedom from internal strife. They knew freedom from external persecution. There had been plenty of that as well for them in previous days. Uh, culminating, of course, in the murder of Stephen and the scattering of the church. Acts chapter 7 and chapter 8 tells us all about that if you wanted to look at it. But come into chapter 9, and we discover Saul, of course, one of the main instigators of persecution against the church. We find Saul being dealt with by the Lord, miraculously converted on the Damascus road. But the church is not yet totally convinced of Saul's motivation. However, Saul gets sent off the scene uh, for his own safety. These Christians send him back to Tarsus. And, and all of that external persecution that was going on has come to an end. The truth is, there's a lot of persecution of the Christian church around the world today. And there's some subtle, well, maybe not so subtle, you can hardly call it persecution, but certainly very severe criticism of the church in our own land. We have our backs to the wall. There's a lot of negative stuff coming against Christianity in our land these days. The truth is, we can't do very much about external persecution and criticism but we can do a lot about internal strife. We can aim to live peaceably with all people, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what Paul says in Romans 12 and verse 18. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That's a good principle to hold on to. 
There is absolutely no excuse, actually, for internal strife marring our witness in our communities these days. And yet it happens. It happens in our churches with monotonous regularity. And those of you who have been around the Christian scene for many years, as I have, know that it happens with monotonous regularity, strife, internal strife within our congregations. Absolutely unnecessary. And a denial of who we are and who, whom we're serving. So, the early church says, look, new peace, wonderful. Internal and external. And he says there is growth. There is growth in maturity. We're being strengthened, is what he says in that verse 31. And the church needed that, needed to be strengthened. After, after pain and struggle, after seeing dear friends die, they needed to be strengthened. And it was part of the maturing process that was going on in their lives. There were roots going down deep. There, there, there was a, a deepening of the life of faith. Paul knew that strengthening from the Lord. He writes to Timothy much later. He writes to Timothy, everyone deserted me. Everyone deserted me. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. I shared with you before uh, the experience of John Payton, who had been a missionary in the mid-1800s, missionary to the New Hebrides, that's now Vanuatu in the South Pacific. And they hadn't been there a year when Payton's young wife died giving birth to their first child. Inevitably, in these circumstances, the baby also died a few days later. John Payton had to dig the grave for his loved ones with his own hands, and it became a much frequented spot for him as he prayed for the salvation of these islanders. And he said later, but for Jesus and the fellowship he vouchsafed me there, I must have gone mad and died beside that awful grave. But for Jesus. There is growth in maturity when in the midst of all the awful things that go on in our lives, we can say, but for Jesus. He has not let me go. He will not leave me or forsake me. That's a maturing of faith when we can say that. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless will abide with me. So there's growth in maturity. And there's growth in numbers for the early church. They were stretched out. Not, not just in Jerusalem, but out. Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And Luke is letting us see here that that is exactly what was happening. And also in Galilee, says Luke, 
And that's significant because, of course, Galilee is where so much of Jesus' ministry took place. And, and here is the fruit of that ministry being seen as men and women are becoming part of the new young church and following Christ. The church is being strengthened and it's being stretched. And at a time when you and I are seeing church decline in the West, we're not, we're not seeing the stretching, we're seeing the opposite in the West. At a time like that, we need to give thanks for growth spots in our own land and certainly worldwide because the church is being stretched in many, many places. And we thank God for that. My sec second son attends a church in Peterborough, down in England. It was started about not quite 30 years ago, from scratch, from absolutely nothing. Now there are more than a thousand people in attendance at that church every Sunday. They have planted three other churches within that space, actually just within the last five or six years, they've done these church plants. That is, that is healthy growth and it's happening in our land, and, and that's being repeated in a number of other places around the land. In 1900, Korea had no Protestant church, none. Today, there are over 7,000 Christian churches in the city of Seoul alone in South Korea. That's happened in the last century. Do you know, more people in the Islamic world have come to Christ in the last 25 years than in the entire history of Christian missions since the church started. Many missionaries spent their whole lives working in Muslim countries and never saw any conversions. In the last 25 years, more Muslims have been converted than in all previous history of the church. And at Queen's Park, we've seen a number of Muslims come to Christ in recent years. There are things to celebrate in our own land, and we need to give thanks to God for that. And here is the early church growing in maturity, in numbers, and also in the Holy Spirit. Luke tells us they were encouraged by the Holy Spirit. And this, of course, is a huge part of the Spirit's ministry. Jesus, in John chapter 16, describes him as the encourager, the one who comes alongside. The old authorized version translates it as the comforter, and we have known the Holy Spirit by that title um, for a long time, the comforter. But of course, when the AV was written, that word comfort meant something a bit different from what it means to us now. And uh, you probably saw the news a week or two back, there's some talk that the Bayou Tapestry uh, may well come to Britain uh, for a short time. Whether that will happen or not is debatable. But um, I never think of the Holy Spirit as the comforter without thinking of that scene in the Bayou Tapestry where the caption is, Bishop Odo comforteth his troops. 
But the picture is, the scene is of Bishop Obo, Odo sticking a spear in the backside of the soldier in front of him. That's how he comforted his troops. And that's how the Holy Spirit comforts us. It's a prodding, encouraging ministry that comes from the Spirit. He comes alongside to help us, to encourage us, to urge us on. And knowing that help and that prodding encouragement of the Holy Spirit, the early church kept moving forward, strengthened, stretched, and Spirit-inspired. There is growth. And finally also this, Luke says, there is reverence. There is reverence in the church. Actually, reverence is too weak a word for what we want here. Sometimes we think of reverence as a kind of empty silence, and we say that's reverence. Of course, it's not necessarily reverence. Reverence is much more than that. We're told that they were living in the fear of the Lord. What does it mean to live in the fear of the Lord? Truth is, we don't like that notion very much today. But it's everywhere in Scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 12 gives a lovely definition of this. It says, Now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God? to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees. And Jesus said, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The verse I just quoted in Deuteronomy makes clear that fearing the Lord is awe mingled with respect and love and obedience. It's, it's not a craving, cringing in the corner kind of fear, but it's a wholesome dread of displeasing our loving Father. It's a constant recognition that God is absolutely sovereign. I'm not calling the shots here. He is. He is. Living in the fear of God is Job saying, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. God is sovereign. God is in total control. But I love him and I trust him because he can be trusted. That's the fear of the Lord. That's biblical faith. That's not modern faith. Modern faith puts me at the center. Modern faith says God is here to please me. It says if he blesses me, I'll trust him. If he looks after me, I'll follow him. But biblical faith says though he slays me, I will trust him. That's the fear of the Lord. But it's not what we like to hear. F.W. Faber has a lovely hymn which we never sing now. Well, maybe you sing it here sometimes, but I've not sung it, I don't know for how long. It's the hymn, My God, 
how wonderful thou art, thy majesty, how bright. And it has the verse, Oh, how I fear thee, living God, with deepest, tenderest fears, and worship thee with trembling hope and penitential tears. I went just to check the quote. I looked it up in Mission Praise. Here's what I found. The verse says, Oh, how I love you, living God, who my heart's longing hears, and worship you with certain hope and penitential tears. It's perfectly good uh, sentiment, of course, to have, perfectly worshipful sentiment to have, but it's not what the original hymn says. It's not the same as F.W. Faber originally wrote. But you see, modern worshippers don't like the idea of fearing God. But that's what the early Christians were doing. And no wonder, no wonder, because they had seen their own lives transformed, not by education or by prolonged counseling, though I'm not despising either of these things, of course. And wasn't it wonderful to hear about what's going on in India with the folks that are being served and ministered to by the IREF and others there? Of course, it's important. But that's not what was happening in the early church here. They were transformed from defeated, depressed followers in an instant by the impact of the Holy Spirit on their lives. That same day, they saw thousands of people become believers just like that. They could never have done that by themselves. It was the Lord. They saw people miraculously healed. They discovered the Spirit was enabling them to do exactly what Jesus had done, to replicate the ministry of Christ. They realized they were dealing with a holy God. They saw Ananias and Sapphira judged for hypocrisy, and we're told great fear seized the whole church. This was not a game they were playing. They were very aware of that. They experienced prison doors being burst open to set them free. They were dragged before the Sanhedrin and flogged and ordered not to speak in the name of Jesus. The next thing we read is, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. They were learning not to fear men who certainly could beat and flog their bodies, but to fear God, who held all of their eternity in his hands. And in our day and age, we need something of that. True reverence to rub off on us. So that's the story so far. That's it. That's Luke's summary at this point of New Testament church life. They were enjoying a time of peace, free from internal bickering and external pressure. They were seeing remarkable growth in maturity and in numbers. And that wasn't thanks to their smart ideas and programs, but to the powerful and encouraging ministry of the Holy Spirit on whom they were totally dependent. And they were living 
in the fear of God, a whole different dimension. As J.B. Phillips said, this surely is the church as it was meant to be. And know that that summary of Airdrie Baptist Church might be just like that. May it be so. For Jesus' sake and for the glory of God. Let's pray for a moment.